It's the show, no problem. On point and on the program, lockdowns have costs. We've talked about it on the show. And eating disorders have reached a crisis level in Ontario. And there aren't enough services and care for patients. And so now we've got teens who are in a life and death situation. Fighting what fighting? Anna Mae Paul says she's not going to let her party's internal fighting distract her from the job, which is what they're trying to take away from her. They are intent on not just getting rid of her, but apparently destroying the party. And working from home is a new reality, moving forward, of course, but our labor laws no longer fit the bill in this new workplace, which means the employees aren't protected as they should be. Let's get talking. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. The activists put on quite a show. Which is what this encampment showdown with police is all about. Hello there, Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, July 22nd. A nice day of that, so great to have you here with us. So here we are, three down, and one more encampment to go. And you can bet your bottom dollar that the encampment at Moss Park in Toronto will promise the biggest show of force of them all. And I'm not talking about the police, but the activists who are pretty well organized and I think look very much forward to the fight. And, you know, there's a lot of outrage uh, over police actions used at the Alexandra Park encampment that was taken down Wednesday, mainly from those who feel the city should just let people live wherever they want in parks. But from the activists, of course, who conveniently show up when they know the media will be watching. And only 14 people actually lived in this particular park, yet somehow when police were ready to move in, there were suddenly a couple of hundred pro-encampment activists amassed. And... This is not a new tactic. For many of these homelessness activists, this is a career. And that is not to say that some weren't there with good intentions, but many are there to actually pick the fight they know they'll get. So they're not really helping. I see it as just a blurring of the line on the actual issue of homelessness and turning it into a show of how cops are brutish thugs and the city's just cold and ruthless to their cause, whether it's, you know, on homelessness or whatever anti-government measure they take issue with, uh, you know, at the moment. And I'm not insensitive to the plight of homelessness. It's been an issue in Toronto for as long as I can remember. And it certainly is across this province, only made worse by this pandemic. And of course, instead of solving it, politicians just keep promising to deliver affordable housing and then it's never delivered. But the reality is many of those people in the parks won't take anything offered to them, no matter how good it is. Because the city has offered hotel and shelter space for every resident. You get meals and also addiction services. And some have taken the help. But others would rather just stay outdoors. Which, okay, that is their choice. But that does not mean then that they can live in public parks. Parks, you know, which belong to the public. And the reality is, these encampments aren't just tents in a park. When you get these tents and these, you know, hastily put together, you know, little shanty homes come increase crime, 
dirty needles left wherever they fall, people defecating wherever they please, often in the yards of the residents who live around the park. They just become unusable, and the communities just become unsafe. And for the few who have built these encampments, and we really are talking about a few at each of these, some of them don't even live there full time. Reports have revealed in the past that some just go in, pitch the tent, they hang out during the day, and then they go off elsewhere at night. So that's not homelessness. That's just exploiting the issue so you can hang out in a makeshift village. And I'm no cheerleader for Toronto's mayor, but certainly in the case of these encampments, you know, the city has indeed bent over backwards to help those who actually need and want help. They've had support workers going in daily for months. Toronto Fire goes regularly, making sure that people are safe. If anything, I think the city's been too gener generous with their very first mistake being that they allowed these encampments to take root at all. And now, predictably, the same city councillors who demanded that the city take action are now condemning the mayor, saying, well, there needs to be compassion. Well, pick a lane. Do you want action for the entire community you serve or not? Because the cops didn't just all of a sudden show up en masse to knock heads. The city had been issuing warnings for weeks that the encampments would be shutting down. And so instead of heeding these warnings, they chose to stay. And organized activists chose to show up and use the opportunity to poke the police. And poke they did. And then predictably when they got arrested, they then cried victim. And I'll be the first, of course, to say, look, if the cops step out of line, I, I will critique. I've covered a lot of these things, dozens of them over the years. I was in the thick of G20 when it went to hell. That is not what happened on Wednesday. And even worse, some of those in these encampments who were ready to take the help, they wanted to go to a hotel, were blocked by those who claimed to be fighting for them. So whose side are the pro-encampment activists on? Well, theirs. And that's why I think it's pretty much a given that when it comes to you know, shutting down the next encampment, which will be the fourth in the city of Toronto, you can expect that the theatrics will be in full tilt. That's just my prediction. All right, great to have you here on this very busy Thursday. And one of the many things this pandemic has spawned is the increase in things like mental health and addiction issues. And we've talked about it on the show before, but one of the worst things pediatricians are seeing is this record numbers of eating disorders. And new data reveals that admissions for this horrific disease has jumped by 223% in teenagers. And even worse, as I read this article, is that there aren't enough resources or hospitals to take these kids in. And doctors are calling the situation the worst that they've ever seen. And if you've ever dealt with anyone who's got this dreadful disease, then you know just how complex it is, how specialized the treatment for it is. And right now, Ontario doctors say they've got kids in a life and death situation. They don't have the services available. Yona Bud is co-founder and clinical director of The Farm in Stouffville and Recover at Home. He's an addiction and crisis therapist as well, host of Road to Recovery on 640 Toronto, which you can, of course, listen to Saturdays at 10 p.m. here. He joins us now for our weekly wellness check. Good to have you, Yona. Nice to be here, Alex. Thank you. This is more of that collateral damage that um, I think is the wrong term we should be using. But this uh, explosion of cases 
comes, of course, because of the lockdowns, which caused a lot of young kids, young teens to be in isolation. Then they turn to their social media. They've got no structure. And so what they're finding, more so in, in girls, but, but they are seeing cases in boys, they try to find control. And what they can control is what goes into their body, which has led to a, a huge explosion of eating disorders. It was a sad, as if I said before last week when we chatted, you know, it was a sad state of affairs. We were in a bad place to begin with prior to the pandemic in terms of treating uh, teens in general uh, with mental health disorders. But certainly eating disorders, as you indicated quite astutely, is, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very specialized kind of treatment. Um, mm-hmm. It has a lot to do with not just anxiety, but uh, body image and uh, confidence and all that kind of stuff. So it's quite complex to deal with. And um, we didn't have enough beds or resources before. And now we're seeing the numbers, as you indicated, uh, the numbers are through the roof. And uh, we just don't have the, the people, the places and the, and the beds to, to help these young folks uh, now and uh, looking into the future, which is mind boggling because the government's mm-hmm. spending apparently tons of money on uh, increasing mental health beds. I just haven't seen any. And, and that's the problem. The announcements are great, but then it's like try to find the money trail of to get these services. And it is really, really difficult, which I think causes a lot of people just to give up and suffer in silence. But, you know, this is one of those diseases that um, is uh, comprehensive because it's not just the individual. It affects the whole family. And so you have to have uh, treatment for both. And, and we simply don't have enough beds, as you say. And so what doctors are saying and pediatricians are saying is that they have to send kids to other hospitals all over the province. And so, you know, then you're not even getting a proper treatment plan because when you deal with eating disorders, exactly. um, it's yeah. a family thing. And if the family can't be there for support, um, or or in, in one case, a, pediat- a pediatrician was saying, you know, we're putting people with eating disorders in the same room, which is really dangerous because they enable each other and therefore yep. the disease doesn't get cured. Yeah, the, the, the reality check is like this. Um, eating disorder disease, um, like most mental health disease, requires a bunch of follow-up and care as well. So if you've got a kid in Toronto, let's say, or in Mississauga or wherever, and they're being shipped off to Sudbury for care, they're not going to be able to stay there long enough to do their aftercare program, which is Mm -hmm. months and months of group and stuff. And and frankly, between you and me, man, like and everyone else that's listening, if you're not getting the best of care at Sick Kids or Sunnybrook or one of the the top five hospitals in the world, sitting here. I can't imagine that when you get to, no offense to Sudbury or London and any of these places, but I can't imagine that, you know, the skill set is any greater than what we have here available in the teaching hospitals in Toronto. So are they really getting the best available care or just the best care that's available? Yeah. I mean, this is one of those diseases um, that it it doesn't go away. This is a lifelong battle and it can morph. I mean, you might master the anorexia, but then you fall into bulimia or even things like workout bulimia. But it's one of those things like you can live without alcohol, you can live without drugs, but you can't live without food. So if you're someone with this disease, it is a constant kind of monster on your shoulder. Uh, yeah, most mental health diseases, frankly, are, are uh, you know, stay on your back as you create a, you know, suggested monster on your shoulder. You know, that, that, that monster stays with you regardless of what you're suffering with. You know, eating disorders are just another manifestation of discomfort inside, right? Uh, you said mm-hmm. it very, very correctly. You said, you know, it's about control. Uh, but it's not just, you know, the people that are eating and throwing up or the people that are, that are purging themselves or so on. Uh, there's a lot of kids that I'm dealing with right now and their families who can't stop eating. 
yeah. so there's yeah. a, there's another there's another side of the the bulimia and and such and, and and you know the anorexia side you know is maybe the most the more the, the they're more obvious when you see someone who's clearly 50 pounds underweight or 50 pounds overweight uh, but the thing with this disease is it attacks the kinds of kids that you wouldn't normally see because they're young enough right. that their weight would go up and down it's such an invisible disease that it's mm-hmm. so difficult even for a family doctor to uh, to be able to diagnose. Yeah, and it's it's one of those diseases where if you don't know a lot about it or you've never been around someone who's got it, uh, a lot of people just simply don't understand it. It's like, well, just eat. And, yeah, and that's exactly. not what it's about. It is, a, it is this disease of control, which morphs and keeps morphing if you don't actually get to the stem and the root problem of it. And so... What's the solution here? Because, yeah, the province is dumping money, but I'm hearing from a lot of people, a lot of moms and dads who are like, they feel like they're losing their child to this, but they can't find the help. Well, you know, what's the what's the real answer? The real answer is to uh, try to lean on the resources that are available. Like I would really be leaning on my family doctor big time uh, to try to get into whatever programs are available. It, you know, the, the sad reality is, though, that we're not going to be able to find a quick fix here. This is a, a many hundreds of millions of dollars solution. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, th- I think I think we need to do a better job at home, maybe some better resources online for parents and families to help monitor and support. Uh, but, you know, this is a question of getting to the young person who's who's dealing with the, the discomfort and, and, and the disease and trying to help them get to where they got to get to. No different than if they were sticking a needle in their arm for fentanyl or drinking yeah. too much alcohol at, at 15, you know. Uh, but it's it, I, I don't the answer is I. The answer is we're going to lose a bunch of kids, man, and that's the sad that that's the sad truth. We're gonna we're gonna lose a bunch of kids and maybe wake up, but uh, this was underserviced way back when. It's still very underserviced, and most folks uh, just and, and facilities just aren't capable. And I'm treating a woman now who's in her 30s, who's now drinking and using pain medication, uh, but she overcame an eating disorder in her mid 20 uh, in her mid 20 yeah. in, in her mid 20s. So all she did was you know switch bait and switch, right? So she moved from mm-hmm. from from one mess to another. Uh, so unless we treat, as you've heard me say before, and I sound like a broken record, but unless you treat the stuff underneath, you're never yeah. going to maintain any long-term uh, sobriety or quality eating and you know any of that kind of stuff. Um, I, I suggest to parents that they get their kids that are involved that have eating issues, get them involved in something athletic and then let their coach yeah. and, and, and let their coach and their and their and their teammates kind of support you know, some some perhaps some better eating uh, just as kind of wanting to keep up with everybody if nothing else so it's changing the venue changing the surroundings distractions um, you know a lot of talk therapy um, and just helping kids understand that they do look great and that you know the way they see themselves is not how the world sees them and of course you see all the flaws but the world sees the beauty that you really do have and it's that kind of support that I'm not sure parents are doing a great job with these days yeah and and parents have a lot on their on their shoulders too but you know i I mean i've been saying this since the beginning lockdowns have costs and i know that the science table and all these experts are so focused on covid yona that they are ignoring these illnesses that you know the kids didn't get covid but they've got now a lifelong mental health illness and i don't know how we are good with that yeah, I, I don't know. I'm cer- I personally, I'm certainly not good with it because, as I've told you know, all kinds of people, including Minister Tabello, who's a friend and a colleague, and you know, I've told him before. I said you can't vaccinate your way out of this one. 
Yeah. Like, you know, all yeah. the vaccines in the world and all the jabs in arms, as they say, you know, this is going to be something that uh, it's going to cost hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to try to get some kind of support. And even if we did that, you, know, you and I both know, Alex, if even we did that, you know, so you're going to get what one out of 100 kids are going to get a bed. What do the other 99 do? Yeah. And so just quickly before I let you go, is there, um, you know, if a parent right now is thinking, oh, God, I, I, I need some help now, what is the best avenue? Go through Sick Kids, go through Sheena's place, like, or go straight to the family doctor? Um, well, if, if your family doctor can refer you out, you're going to get somewhere sooner than later. Sick Kids has a great program. Sheena's has a great yeah. program. Um, I'm certainly willing to talk to people if they want to call. Uh, but there's, there, there's some resources out there that are just hard to find and, uh, may not be in your, in your city, right? So, yeah. um, th- you know, that, that's the other problem. Once, you know, where are the resources going to be? I, I, I don't think they're going to be in, in Northern Ontario as quickly as they're going to be in Toronto. So, you know, and, and where's the real problem? So we got to get kids back to school. So getting them back to school, I think, is the solution. And maybe getting some help from the guidance department there that might be a a bit of a, a quick leg up. 100% 100% agree with you. The sooner we get structure and stability, uh, you know, we can start writing this very, very, very long road uh, ahead where we've gone off. Thanks a lot, Yona. I appreciate it. And we will do our wellness check next week. I, I thank you for your time. My, pr- my pleasure. Thank you, Alex. That is Yana Budd, who uh, is, of course, host of Road to Recovery, which you can listen to right here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto, Saturday at 10 p.m. So give it a listen. Might uh, be just what you're looking for right now in, in these times. ...of a small group of outgoing uh, councillors. This was not an action sanctioned by our federal council. It is not an action that came before our federal council. And so I am asking people to just have patience um, as, we, as we transition. And we are in a big transition. Most of our councillors will, um, will have their terms expiring next month. I'm very excited to work with our next group of councillors. And I am not um, going to be distracted any further from really the work that has to be done. That is really what we're here to do. Well, Anna Mae Paul may not see this as a distraction, but her party is a complete gong show. And I, I don't know what's going on, but it seems intent on destroying itself at a time when this party actually had a chance to capitalize on voters who feel betrayed by Justin Trudeau's climate policies. And, and yet here we are, weeks away from an election, and the party grassroots members may have chosen Ms. Paul as the one person they wanted to lead the party, but it is very clear that the executives behind the scene are determined in whatever way they can to destroy her and, I guess, leave the party unelectable. Stephen Carter, president of Decide Campaigns, also one of the strategists on the Strategist podcast, joins us now. Good to have you, Stephen. Thanks very much for having me today, Alex. Your uh, expertise in part is political communication, and um, I was listening to Anna Mae Paul speak today, and, you know, I'm not so sure her message is getting through this very obvious dumpster fire burning all around her, but she is trying. Yeah, she's out there trying real hard, but everybody in the Green Party is fighting her. The Green Party is trying to drag her down at a time when she's trying to lift herself up, even going so far as to remove the staff that are supposed to be helping her get elected in Toronto Centre in the, as you mentioned, forthcoming election. This is all hands on deck to destroy the Green Party by the Green Party itself. Like, I have no skin in this game because I'm not a Green voter, but I I look at this from the outside in. I think the treatment of this woman is disgraceful. 
I think it, I mean, look, the grassroots members chose her. Uh, that's what the party was built on, you know. And, and so I think the treatment that she's getting from the internal politics is just absolutely disgraceful. Um, you know, but she is clearly intent on running in one of the hardest ridings to win. You know, it's downtown Toronto, as you well know, is very red, no matter who runs. Um, and she claims that there's no infighting and that this is just a big transition. But there is infighting. And I'm not sure... Um, that she has the time now to get the momentum under her feet that she's going to need. So at a time when Canada needs the Green Party probably more than it ever has, I mean, I'm out in Western Canada where we're going undergoing the a huge climate emergency, and we can see it now. We can see it, we can feel it, we can breathe it. And the Green Party, the people who've been talking about it for the longest, are essentially silent because uh, they are doing infighting, uh, and they're not respecting... Uh, the will of their own members, because, of course, uh, a group of men, mostly men, uh, know best and want to save the party uh, from the woman elected by the members. And this is a, a story that has happened before. I worked with Alison Redford, watching her get mm-hmm. undermined from day one uh, by the men who ran the party. And that's it's hard to to be in politics. It's hard enough to be in politics anyways without being yeah. undermined by your own team. I mean, look, um, Paul Martin fought with Jean Chrétien. There's, there's been infighting in parties, but one thing they did was, uh, I guess, maybe maybe back in the day it wasn't seen as that, but even that didn't get this ugly. I don't think we've ever seen anything quite this ugly in politics displayed so publicly. Well, I mean, I've seen uh, people, you know, when, I, when I've said this is the worst thing that I've ever seen to a, a Canadian political leader, some people have tried to drudge up examples of when it was just this bad. It's never been this bad. If it's been bad, it's been one member, one elected member trying to take on another elected member. Keep in mind that in our system, someone who's elected by the membership, someone who's elected by the general public should have more standing than the people sitting in the back rooms with their big cigars trying to decide which direction a party should go. The back rumors should not have this type of power and should not have this strong a voice. And unfortunately, in politics today, that is just a reality. And I I think, uh, you know, that is why we have so much cynicism when it comes to politics. It's because of this centralized power within that is not really serving the people, but serving the internal executive. Um, But where's Elizabeth May? I mean, she has literally, utterly been silent. I know that she had knee, knee surgery, but this is a woman who's never uh, been afraid to speak. She She doesn't ever stop talking. And yet, where is she? Well, this is the great sin, I think, of uh, that she's faced with. She's She should be out there leading the change to, to this new leader. And instead, she puts forward tepid support for the party, tepid support for the leader when forced months after the problem began. Um, and again, keeping in mind, the problem begins with something is, uh, like the Palestine-Israel issue, uh, which mm. is not even that core to the overall green message structure. This is this is a fight about nothing that people have drawn trenches on, and it's as intracted now as the as the First World War, with both sides just lobbing grenades at the other. Uh, and Anami Paul is now trying to pretend as though it doesn't exist, um, trying to be the United States in this situation. Everybody's in it. It's a disaster, and it, it's going to cost the Green Party uh, those few seats that it had. Is that how you see it, that they're going to lose the two seats? Because, I mean, look, to, to, in order to, to run a campaign, you got to look like you at least have your, you have to have your collective stuff together. I mean, at least on appearances. It might be disarray in the background, chaotic, but you never let that show. Never let them see you sweat. 
I just don't know, and, and I've certainly heard from a lot of young people who looked at her and thought, okay, well, here's an opportunity, here's a new face, here's a new voice, some new ideas. I don't like Justin Trudeau, he hasn't delivered. They don't look at Jagmeet Singh, but they were looking at her. Um, and, and I just don't see her being able to get the organization in check um, before Justin Trudeau calls this election, because obviously this works to his advantage. And he's in, you know, if you believe the polls, this majority status. So as far as he's concerned, he wants this election tomorrow, if he could call it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think young people and, and women across the country and, and people who are concerned about the environment are looking for a different style of leadership. And Anime Paul re- represents that. She, you know, she mm-hmm. is the physical embodiment of change. And instead of uh, having that opportunity to redefine uh, what leadership in Calgary could, or in Canada could look like, she's found herself kind of trapped by her own executive, pushed outside. And, and at a time when Justin Trudeau couldn't be more happy to have mm-hmm. a soft green votes start to float back to the Liberal Party of Canada. Um, she can't organize. She can't get, you know, she has made a bad choice of going in Toronto Centre. That is a I bad so choice. But that is her choice to make. And I think that electeds get, should be given the opportunity to make choices that they think are right and then suffer the consequence afterwards. What you're seeing now yeah. is someone who's suffering the consequence without it being able to actually commit the, commit the mistake. Hell, she should have run against Jenica Atwin. I think that would have just been, a, I think that would have been the story of the election. But, you know, that that, that opportunity is not one she's taking. And, and I live beside the riding she's running in. And I just don't think even on her third try, and even though she's high profile right now in, in the media, I just don't think it's going to translate into a, a green vote. It's just the reality of this particular area of Toronto. Um, but here we are. Do you get the sense, um, because of all of this infighting, that the Green Party is you know, dead moving forward? Or where do you see this going? I think that the Green Party is in a really difficult position because when the Green Party forms, of course, it is taking up arms on an issue that people don't realize how important it's going yeah. to be 20 years in the future. And and now the NDP has got a very strong Green Party, uh, Green platform. The Liberals have a strong Green platform. The Black Quebecois have a strong Green platform. The only party not with a strong Green platform is the Conservatives. And even they're making, you know, notions of it. I mean, it's not real, but it's, it's at least they're pretending. Um, the Green Party, has they, have they lost their raison d'etre? Have they lost why they should exist? And I, I fear that they, they could have been carving out um, the I told you so positioning. We were the first ones there. And at this particular moment, uh, they're just giving it all away and they're giving it back to, uh, to the other parties. They're giving their positioning back to the Liberals and, and to the NDP. And then Jagmeet Singh is probably the one who's who's got the most to gain from this mm-hmm. complete uh, annihilation of the of the Green Party by their own hand uh, at yeah. a time when they they really should be taking something vaguely resembling a victory lap. Yeah, and ultimately that plays well for Aaron O'Toole. But nonetheless, I mean, look, uh, the only thing. Uh, going for Anna Mae Paul, I think right now, and it's sad to say, is a fourth wave, because if uh, Trudeau calls this in a fourth wave, he'll pay the price politically. But uh, the longer she can keep this election from being called, obviously, the better off she is in getting her feet under her. But none, uh, boy, what a show they have put on for uh, the last uh, couple of weeks. It's just disgraceful. Stephen, show. I appreciate it. Absolutely yeah, wrong, gone- wrong show. Yeah, well, maybe you should run. <laughs> no, I, I like this, Alex. You, you and okay. I, this is fun. This All running right. stuff's horrible. Okay, good. I'll uh, I'll have you on again then. Thanks a lot. Appreciate your time. Thanks very much, Alex. Talk to you soon.
That is Stephen Carter, president of Decide Campaigns and also one of the strategists on something called the Strategist Podcast. So there you go. Someone in the green side of things saying, you're a gong show. Get your crap together. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? All right, great to have you here on this Thursday as we ease closer to our weekend. Um, what will the work life look like once these waves of COVID stop? Um, you know, we, we will, I think, in many parts be accepting that working from home is just now a part of this life. And it took a pandemic to force the change that experts insisted would take decades. And while well, they were wrong. It actually took about 48 hours to turn how and where we work on its head. And not only has working remotely proved to be very doable, but data shows that production levels actually didn't go down at all. In many cases, employers got the same, if not more, out of employees. And so many workplaces are now planning forward, incorporating this more flexible and remote working approach into the big picture. And the Fraser Institute dove into the labor picture to see what it would look like, and they find that 25% of us will work from home once we're out of this thing. But that will mean labor laws need to change because, well, they are outdated. Jason Clemens, Executive Vice President of Fraser Institute, he joins us now. Good to have you, Jason. My pleasure. Thank you. I would think that 25% might be on the low side of things. I think the number could actually go higher, and I think a lot of people, you know, will just have this flexibility. It's just kind of the new norm of working from home. Um, you know, we just seem to have been able to achieve something that, you know, just before this, the regular conversation is, oh, no, th- this will never happen, can't do it. It may be 10, 20 years down the line. Uh, that's certainly true. I mean, 40%, roughly 40% of the workforce has the potential to work entirely from home. Uh, there's another 10% that has the potential to work partially from home in a hybrid model. And so the survey data, which, again, we have to you know take that with a grain of salt, uh, but the survey data indicates that the uptick, the permanent uptick will be about half that. So that's where the Professor Gunderson came up with the rough estimate of about one in four workers in Canada um, will likely remain working from home, uh, working remotely once things uh, get back to quote unquote normal, which again, one in four workers is a tremendous change from even just mm-hmm. four or five years ago. Yeah, and I guess it really depends on where this thing goes and what the health officials decide. You know, if, if the instability continues as it is right now, um, you know, the numbers are going to fluctuate. But the other thing is, and I'm not sure if the data bears out on it when it comes to this productivity. I mean, a lot of people, I think the one area of data we don't really have hard numbers on is just how much work people are doing from home. Because the assumption from doing remote working all along has always been, well, you're not going to get as much out of the worker. But I can only speak for myself. I work, I think, even more hours than I did before. And I think most people feel that they're actually putting a lot more into into the office than they were before. Do we have any hard data around that? Uh, well, unfortunately, the, the, the high quality data will be about another year. Uh, but the data that we do have would generally support your impression. And I think the impression of many, many Canadians, which is when you, when you're not interrupted daily by you know the the conversation at the water cooler, you don't have to mm-hmm. commute. Uh, you can adjust your hours more easily to how you're feeling or other things that you have responsibilities for at home. It allows us to be more productive. Now, 
what certainly is not showing up in the data yet and is will be of concern is how do firms create sense of team? How do firms create sense of mission if mm. most of their workforce or a substantial portion of their workforce isn't working from home? Now, I actually think that firms who get this right are going to have a strategic right. advantage and will be rewarded in the market as they should. And so I have no doubt that these things will get sorted out by uh, firms that do well and, and firms that don't will have to learn lessons or, or be replaced. Yeah. And there are also other costs, you know, like workplaces will say, well, do we really need this huge office in, in a downtown core or can we reduce the space? I mean, those things are already happening. And so we're still in the ebbs and flows of, of the change. But then it brings to the point of, of the study, which is the fact that the old rules do not fit this new model. And look, I, I, I only speak for my own boss. He's pretty great. You know, it's not like there are rigid rules. He'll say, hey, do you need a break? Do you need this? Do you need that? And so it, it's good. It's a work environment that works. You know, for me anyway, um, but there are labor laws in place and they're going to have to be changed. Yeah, that's, it's a great point. So right now, well, let's go pre-pandemic. I mean, pre, pre-pandemic, I think there was lots of evidence to suggest that the laws were archaic pre-2020. The fact that we've now had up to 50% of the, our labor force working from home uh, over the last year and almost a half now has just to me kind of put front and center that a lot of these labor laws just don't make sense anymore. And since the beginning of 2020, effectively what's happened is everybody's just sort of ignored them, including the regulators who are supposed to enforce them. Now, the risk with that approach, though, is at some point we're going to have lawsuits. At some point, we're going to have an employee who says, look, I was working overtime and I didn't get paid for it. Or In fact, there's already uh, cases on workers' comp where people are hurt at home saying Mm -hmm. it was during work hours. Um, I think we're certainly going to have cases on health and safety. And so the question then, which unfortunately the answer right now is that governments seem to be punting their responsibility to review and modernize the labor laws and seem content to just punt this to the courts to sort out, which I think there's a real risk there that the courts come back and say, look, if you're an employee, you're covered by laws X, Y, and Z, regardless if you're at home or not. And I think that could have very serious consequences for the ability of firms to allow their team uh, employees to work from home. And I mean, there's just some simple examples we can go over that would show mm-hmm. how if firms are going to be held liable for some of the current labor laws that are on the books, it would be very difficult for them to have uh, any substantive workforce that's working remotely. Yeah. And it also brings up uh, issues with unionization, you know, like and I think to your point, you know, how, how do you prove that you, you fell down the stairs because you were running down to a meeting on Zoom or whatever? Or, you, you know, those are all things that that um, I mean, I guess we're going to have to wait and see what happens. But what, what would be the main labor law that would change uh, in your mind that you see? Well, certainly the Employment Standards Act. So that covers things like work hours, overtime, pay. Yeah. Um, there are some real pitfalls there. Workers' comp, for sure. And again, there's already, uh, I think, two court cases making their way through uh, that can be determinative. And then health and safety regs. Uh, Now, there's several others, but I think those would be the big three where if governments don't start proactively trying to modernize those laws um, Mm -hmm. with a focus on flexibility, allowing employers and employees to figure out what works best for them in different circumstances – then we're really punting this to the court, which means we have uncertainty until the court makes a decision. And then 
who knows what that decision is. Um, and I could certainly see some, some potential cases where it would be very difficult for firms to continue allowing their teams to work remotely because of the liability and or cost yeah. that would be imposed on them. But again, we're talking, what, a couple of years away from getting those decisions. And so where are we in the interim? And and the other thing is, you know, a lot of this is about the honor system, uh, honor system. But, you know, f- for someone like me, you know, I've done my work because you'll hear it on the show. If I don't deliver my show, I have not done my job. But a lot of this structure of, you know, working remotely uh, does require kind of an honor system where it's a it's a give and take. But the other area that needs to change, though, Jason, is the tra- tax structures. I mean, you know, the, the write-offs that they gave for pandemic working at home this year were nothing. I mean, you, that, that stuff's got to change. Well, in fact, it, 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 sorry, you, you raise an interesting question, but now I think there's even going to be a larger question, which we don't address in the study, but we're, we're thinking of it uh, for maybe next year, which is if we have one in four workers working from home, I, I think there's mm-hmm. going to be real questions brought by that group saying, well, why don't I get the tax benefits of a consultant who has their mm-hmm. own small business who right. now can incorporate and pay dividends instead of salaries and pay substantially lower taxes, but because I'm still deemed an employee, I have a tax penalty. And so yeah. I, I would say that's kind of a secondary set of questions that I, I, I think if we do reach a point, which is certainly the path I think we're on, where there's a substantial part of the labor force working from home, There are going to be questions and demand for reform of a whole set of other rules outside of just the labor laws that govern the employer-employee relationship. Yeah, fascinating. We've got a couple of, uh, I think, interesting couple of years ahead of us. I mean, we've we've now dumped the old work model, but uh, now we've got to work a lot of kinks out. So it's an interesting study. Jason, I do appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Jason Clemens with the uh, Fraser Institute. And I did ask my accountant about that. I said, well, hey, I mean, I'm working out of my house. I'm a businessman. And and he said the tax structures aren't set right. And that's why I wanted to ask Jason about that. Thanks for listening. You, of course, can join us live Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.